You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. As we speak, a lot of good Jews have been placed in administrative detention for entering those Arab villages following the murder of those four holy Jews at the Eli Junction in Chumas Eliyahu and the brutality of the police towards these young men who were basically expressing something so true. What? That there's no bitachon. Nobody feels safe. We're tired of being slaughtered and burying our dead. Don't the authorities realize that it's natural that if you feel your life is hefker, that the government doesn't care about your security, that your blood is cheap, obviously you're going to reach the point where you say, I have to defend myself. That's what the settlers are doing. They are trying to deter the next attack against them. But they're getting trashed across the board. And you know, it's kind of funny because a few years ago, if you recall when the Arabs attacked the Jews in Lud, remember that? They made a pogrom. There was a pogrom that lasted for several days in Lud. And you know who defended those Jews in Lud? Yeah, the youth from the hills of Judea and Samaria. They came to the rescue of the Jewish residents of Lud. And you know, when they did that, they were applauded. They really were. People said, look how they left their homes to help the Jews of Lud. Why? Because they couldn't sit back and watch the Arabs of Lud abusing the Jewish residents of Lud. But now that they're trying to defend themselves, forget about it. They're arch enemy number one. And it's amazing how all the media in Israel and abroad, how they cover the violence of the settlers. Every time I pass through Hawara, I see tons of journalists taking those pictures of those burnt out cars from those junkyards. If there's violence by settlers, they love to cover it. They never in their lives reported an incident of an Arab throwing a rack or a mallet of cocktail, things that happen daily. Suddenly, when they see something that they can define as settler violence or Jewish extremists or Jewish terror, that they cover. They cover that and the harsh condemnations and the trashing of these settlers from the government officials, you never hear any of that concerning the violence of the left in Tel Aviv with their judicial reform demonstrations. But when it comes to a community who is getting shot at by Arabs who are burying their dead on a regular basis, whose lives have basically been abandoned and up for grabs, they get trashed in the press when they engage in violence. But when it comes to the Druze violence and the Bedouins who praise the terrorists, the Arab rioting. You don't hear them condemning that or arresting anybody on that. Only these proud religious youth who want to show that there should be some kind of price for Jewish blood that's spilled. I mean, that's why they go into those villages. They're not just going to bury their dead and that's it. There's got to be some price to be paid. And when they engage in violence, you got that machlakata yudit, that Jewish division of the Shin Bet to put the screws to them. Why don't they put the screws to anybody else? I'll tell you why. First of all, they look at the payas, the earlocks of those hilltop youth, and they hate that because it's everything they're not. It's everything their kids are not. Jewish pride, Judaism, love of the land. That's everything their generation doesn't have. But more than that, they know that these hilltop kids, they're the easiest target in the world. You can do what you want to them. And these kids have no recourse. They don't have any leverage. So the government doesn't do a thing about the leftist riots and the Arab rioting and the Bedouin and the Druzim, because there'll be repercussions. So what do they do? They take out their frustration on the settlers, because again, they're an easy target. Why are they such an easy target? Because they don't have the European Union to back them up. They don't have the United States 
of the liberal New York Times on their side. So who's going to fight for them? And so the would-be Israeli government, they have to crack down on these kids because because there's no repercussions in public opinion. And they feel by cracking down on these kids, they're soothing the world who's condemning them. And like I said, they're an easy target because if you abuse the settlers, they have no way of applying pressure. They're not going to block the streets en masse. They're not going to close down Big Gurian Airport like the leftists can do. What can they do? They're not the machers of the country. They really can't retaliate in any serious way in the realm of public opinion. You can arrest them. You can beat them. You can jail them. What's their recourse? And that's why Yoav Gallant and his friends put the screws to them. I mean, they're really tough against those kids. Why didn't the Israeli authorities do anything concerning those Arab organized crime families that was all over the news? They folded up and they folded up in the face of Druze violence. And they're the biggest wimps when it comes to facing Iran and the Hamas. They didn't even do anything when an Egyptian policeman killed Israeli soldiers on the border. That happened a few weeks ago. What did they do about that? But they'll put the screws to these good Jews, Jews that possess something that they lost long ago. They possess ruach, faith in God, love of the land. And that's one of the reasons they go against them, full force, because they know they don't have that. They're empty vessels. You know, on this show, I talk a lot about the uh, pre-state days when the Jewish underground fighters were fighting off the Arabs and the British. We talk a lot about the Etzel and the Lechi. And we talked about David Raziel and Shlomo Ben Yosef and the policy of Havlaga that the Jewish agency at that time adopted. What is Havlaga? It means self-restraint. Lavlig means to restrain yourself. So during those pre-state days when the Arab murderers were perpetrating pogroms and murdering Jews, just like they do today, they were doing it back then in Jerusalem and Hebron, they murdered hundreds of Jews during that time. And the Jewish establishment back then insisted on this Havlaga policy. Now, it's not like they didn't care that Jews were being murdered. Of course they cared. But what they were doing was they were waiting for the British mandatory occupation government to handle it. They were figuring that the British will do their job and they'll protect innocent Jewish civilians living in Palestine. After all, the British Empire is responsible for the citizens of Palestine. And that was their approach all the time. That was how they expected to achieve a state, that the British will come through on their promises and they'll grant us a state according to the Balfour Declaration, especially if we help them in World War II. There were promises made and Ben-Gurion and Weizmann. They were banking on the British to create a Jewish state. And that's why the Jewish establishment back then hated the Etzel and the Lechi because those groups were attacking the British. Anyway, Jews were being murdered by Arabs and the British were not protecting the Jews, the Jewish civilians. I mean, they would make a half-hearted attempt after a riot breaks out and a few Jews are killed, they'll come suppress the riot. Kind of like what the IDF does today, after a terror attack, then you see the jeeps, then you see the soldiers. As a matter of fact, if you pass by the gas station at Ellie right now, where the last murder happened at the gas station in Ellie, you'll see a bunch of jeeps there and a bunch of soldiers as if they're preventing the attack that already happened. Well, eventually the Jews back then, they were getting sick of this Havlaga policy. And that's when Jews like David Raziel and Shlomo Ben Yosef, they broke the Havlaga. They struck back. They said, if the British aren't going to defend us, we'll defend ourselves. And it wasn't just defense, it was going on the attack. David Raziel personally placed a bomb in an Arab marketplace, which killed tens of Arabs. 
And I use Raziel as an example intentionally because he is a consensus Jewish hero today. I mean, there's streets in his name, the stamps in his name, there's a yeshuv in his name. But when he did it, well, he was condemned as a Jewish terrorist, just like the Jews today are. What were they condemned for? For taking the law into their own hands. They were messing up the relations with the British. In the eyes of the Jewish establishment, they were threatening the very existence of Israel before it even started. Imagine what world opinion was like when the two Eliyahu's assassinated Lord Moyne. We're talking hysteria. But today, the two Eliyahu's are heroes. And Menachem Begin, who headed the Irgun, he became the prime minister. And Shamir, who headed the Lehi, he became the prime minister. So sometimes you have to look at the sweep of history and not get caught up at the moment. Because if you get caught up in the moment, all you hear is another condemnation. And if you try to know what's going on in the world by reading the newspaper, that's like trying to tell what time it is by looking at the second hand of a clock. It's only after generations when you have perspective that you really know what the reality is. But just referring again to those pre-state days when Jewish blood was cheap and the British weren't doing anything about it, I ask you, what is the difference between then and now? What is the difference between what the Hilltop Boys are doing now and what the pre-state undergrounds did? In both situations, Arabs were killing Jews. In both situations, the government wasn't protecting them. And in both situations, some Jews got sick of it and started to get preemptive. Why is Shlomo Ben Yosef a hero? But the youth today who fight back are hated. Well, if you ask the Zionists, the Mamlachti Zionists, as they say, they would say, well, they say, look, in those pre-state days, the British were ruling, it was a foreign occupation. Now, it's a Jewish government, so you can't compare it. Today, we have a Jewish government, we have our own state, we have our own army. In the days of the British, we didn't. And so then you're able to take the law into your own hands, then it's okay. But now that we have our own state and our own army, you're not supposed to take the law into your hands. You got to let the IDF take care of it. Now I'm asking you, if Jewish blood is being spilled and there's no real end in sight and Jews are feeling unprotected, what does it matter if it's a Jewish government in charge or a British mandate in charge? What does it matter? Same situation. Just because it's a Jewish government now, we're supposed to sit and take it? It's worse that it's happening under a Jewish government. You know, it's important to learn Tanakh because in the Tanakh, we have a story, chapter 26 in the book of Shmuel, where a Jewish city called Ke'ilah was being attacked by the Philistines. And King Saul, who was supposed to be protecting the city of Ke'ilah, he was the king, he was head of the army, he was responsible for the security of the citizens. But the Jewish government under King Saul wasn't protecting the city of Ke'ilah. So you know what happened? David and 400 hilltop youth, they came to the rescue of the city of Ke'ilah. You could check out that story in Shmuel Aleph chapter 26. Jews needed help to fight the Philistines. The government of Israel wasn't ready or willing to help them. So David and his private army, they protected the city. And Rabbi Kahana touches upon this subject, whether individual Jews may rise up if the sovereign body isn't doing its job. He talks about it in his epic book, The Jewish Idea, in the chapter on Misirut Nefesh. And he writes that if there's a deliberate chilul Hashem by the nations, a desecration of God's name, where they're killing Jews, where they're humiliating Jews, and there's no government, and there's no army, or there is a government and army who are obligated by the Torah to wipe out such desecration, and for whatever reason, 
they either aren't willing or capable of fulfilling their obligation, then it is certainly the individual's duty to assume the government's role and to put himself even in danger to blot out with Mishu Nefesh, devotedly, the Chilul Hashem. Then the individual who does take action, he steps into the role of the king or the government. As our sages teach us, where there are no men, strive to be a man. And so the rabbi is playing it here. If there's no army, then you be the army. If there's no government, then you strive to be the government. And again, that's how David conducted himself when he fought the Philistines in Ke'ilah, when he went against Goliath. At the time, he wasn't the king, but he went against Goliath because the king wasn't willing to do it. So certainly in Jewish sources, we have a lot of precedents where individual Jews stood up and defended the pride of the nation of Israel. Of course we prefer that the government does it, the army takes care of the situation. Of course that's what we want. The question is, what if it's not happening? That's the question. What do you do then? You're supposed to sit back in the meantime and just get hit and wait for them to step up? No, you have to step up. Just to change the subject a little bit, not that much. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke about the Altalena, the Irgun ship that was coming to the rescue of the Jews in the War of Independence. And Ben-Gurion and Rabin blew up the ship. And like we said then, they did it because they saw Begin, Menachem Begin, as a threat. And they wanted to rule the new state. It had to be them and nobody else. It didn't matter that these weapons were arriving during a time of war against the Arabs when those weapons were so desperately needed. Because it didn't matter to them that there's a Jewish state or not. It mattered that if there is a state, they're going to run it. You see, they're the privileged ones. They're the elites. And I bring this up because that's what this judicial reform debate is really about. Those who oppose it, what they're saying is, we're the privileged. We're the founders. We're the ones who brought the Sephardi Jews to Israel. See, we're the pilots who flew in the Ethiopian Jews. So they're saying, you Sephardis and Ethiopians, you're here because of us. See, that's their mentality. They're saying, if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't be here. And you know, it's such flawed thinking because everybody contributed to the state in their own way, in its own time. Yeah, they did their part. And Jews from all the different strata in Israel, they did their part. Everybody in their time contributed to the state. You know, their mentality that they have to rule because like they were here first. It reminds me of what happened in Tapuch when I came to this village in 1990. This was a Yemenite settlement. It was a bunch of Yemenites that came from Bereket in about 1976 or so. And the settlement here was full of strife because the original Yemenites were eventually taken over by other Yemenites who came, who weren't the founders of the settlement, but they became a majority and they outvoted the original Yemenite settlers and they started to run the Yishuv. And the original settlers from Bereket, who are now a minority, they didn't cooperate. They refused to pay their taxes. Their thinking was, hey, we started this place. Who are you upstarts to take it over? Anyway, that's one of the reasons we were able to come into this settlement as a green of students of Rabbi Kahana. The settlement was so stuck that nobody wanted to live there inside these wars with these Yemenites. They were so happy to take us because nobody wanted to live there because of the infighting and the conflict. It just wasn't pleasant to be there. And they weren't able to absorb new families. So we came as a garin, as a nucleus of six, seven families. That's how desperate they were to fill up the Yishuv. 
because they were desperate for new blood. The place wasn't growing. It was stagnating from all the internal fighting. So I don't know, maybe it's human nature, you know? The guy starts an organization, he starts a country, he starts a movement, and then he starts to lose power over it. And so he takes his toys back and he goes home. That's what the elites of Israel are doing. They feel they're losing their country. They've become a minority. They don't have enough kids. They're heavy on pets and heavy on abortions. And the traditional Jews do have kids. So we started to outnumber them. I want to now play for you something that Jonathan Pollard said last week. Jonathan Pollard is not only a Jew who really gave of himself for his people in a real way, a real Jewish hero. He also happens to be a great speaker and an ideologue. Now, here's a person who could have been given all the accolades and all the honors by the Israeli establishment. He could have been a Knesset member for any party he chose. He could have cashed his chips in like Sharansky did when Sharansky came out of a Russian jail. But Jonathan Pollard didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he has a message that the Israeli authorities, they don't want him to be heard because he has reach. It's not like me giving a podcast here. Jonathan Pollard, people listen to him. The Israeli public love him and respect him because Am Israel knows who its real heroes are. A couple of years ago, I was at the Shiva for his wife, Esther, and it was in Kiryat Moshe, a neighborhood in Jerusalem. And the lines were nonstop for seven days, 24 hours. People were going in and out to comfort Jonathan Pollard on the passing of his wife, Esther. I'm talking about a full house. There had to be guards there to make sure that people came in and people came out so it wouldn't be too crowded. You weren't allowed to be in there for more than 20 minutes because there were so many people waiting outside. That's how the people love and appreciate Jonathan Pollard. But that's the people. That's the Amcha, the regular people. But the Israeli authorities, they're scared of him. They want to shut him up. And in a minute, <laughs> I'll show you why. But he's not going to shut up because he is Jonathan Pollard and he doesn't care. Now, he talks here about the IDF losing its deterrent factor. He talks about the fact that there's definitely going to be a regional war in the area. The Arabs are armed to the teeth. And we have to be ready for that because we know that when we get attacked from the outside, the Arabs are going to be a fifth column. And he doesn't just fetch and talk about the problems. He gives the answers. So let's hear a little bit of Jonathan Pollard here speaking at the Suda Mitzvah of David Stern, David Stern, of course, was the former Marine who was shot at in Khawara with his wife, and he shot back. And he was wounded, but he also wounded the Arab shooter. It was a miracle. And he had a Sudat mitzvah. And Jonathan Pollard was invited. And here are some of the things he said. The answer to this question of what's to be done right now in the territories is a very simple one. We fight. That's all. It's very simple. We eliminate Janine. We eliminate Calcaria, we eliminate Tulkaran, we repopulate the area in the northern Shomron that was vilely evacuated during the Hidnachut, and we expel the Arabs that are living in there. I, they're not afraid of us anymore, not because they're stronger than us, but because we're weak and we forgot why we're here. This is the second reconquest of the land right now. And Hashem, when the orders that were given to Yeshua bin Nun apply today to us as well. Get rid of them. Get rid of them all. There's no peace with them at all. I don't want a mob of these animals surrounding another precious Jewish couple laughing at them. 
while one of them is bleeding and the other one is scared to death that her husband is dying. This is an affront to God. This is our land. The U.S. didn't give us this land. The U.N. didn't give us this land. The League of Nations didn't give us this land. The European Union didn't give us this land. The Kodesh who gave us this land. Nobody else, us. And we're supposed to fight for it. When you're fighting an enemy, there are no innocent civilians. There just aren't. It's them and us. The Army basically just admitted that we're on our own. All of us civilians, we're on our own. They'll be hammering our cities, our villages, everything. Because the Army can't handle the missile strike. And why did we, how did we come to this state of affairs? How did this happen? Who let this happen? The Army. Because for them, their philosophy is kicking the can down the road, ending the day without a problem, and managing the enemy. Well, I told them very clearly, you don't manage an enemy, you kill an enemy. As quickly and as efficiently as possible. That was Jonathan Pollard. Now you get an idea why the Israeli authorities don't want his words getting out too much. Is he not the closest thing to Mashiach that we have right now? I don't think there is anybody closer. That's it for me. Don't forget to tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. There's nothing like the Bible to give us those basic fundamental concepts of how to fight a war, living in the land of Israel as a nation, normal, fighting enemies like normal people. No, Joshua, he didn't drop leaflets when he attacked Jericho. He didn't drop leaflets when he wiped out the Canaanites. At the moment, our classes are in the book of Shmuel. We're learning about David, about Saul, authentic Jewish leaders with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. So you can Google Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes to hear some of that. And you can email me for any questions or comments, LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com. Lenny Goldberg 40, but that's with two N's, the number 40, Lenny Goldberg 40 at gmail.com. See you next week.